0: everyone. It is Zoe here and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast. This is the show that's going to give you all the ideas, tools, and validation you need as we navigate our lives together as mothers. In August, to give me and the team a bit of a break from our rather hectic recording schedule, we re-release some of our most popular, most loved episodes from the first six months of the year. And I am so excited for you to hear this one. Here it is. Just a quick ask from me before we dive into this week's episode. You might not know this, but we are a really small team behind the scenes at MotherKind, but we have a massive ambition to support millions of mothers to feel more confident, happy and empowered. And even though we've got this incredible back catalogue of over 300 episodes, I really do feel like we are just getting started. And often you lovely listeners will ask me how you can support the podcast and help us reach more mums. So I've thought of a really easy way that you can do that. Because from today, you can subscribe to the podcast if you listen on Apple Podcasts, which over 70% of you do. So for just $3.99 a month, you can support our Motherkind mission and you get all the podcasts ad-free going forward. It's really easy. All you need to do is just go to your Apple Podcasts app, find Motherkind, find the section at the top where it says support the podcast and enjoy ad-free episodes. Click on that. You'll then have a seven-day ad-free trial where you can hear what it feels like to listen to the podcast with no ads whatsoever, and then you move on to pay $3.99 a month. And every single penny of that money will go towards empowering more mothers with this incredible guests, ideas, and tools that we share week after week on the show. Thank you so much for your support. I really appreciate it. Whether you subscribe or not, I am incredibly grateful that you are here. And thank you for being part of the Motherkind mission. Okay, on to this week's episode. To kick off the new year, I've got an incredible episode for you this week. It's only Paul C. Brodson, who is known as the Love Doctor and Real Life Hitch. He is a matchmaker, television host, seal entrepreneur, and author. He was chosen as the world's most influential matchmaker, and Paul currently hosts Married at First Sight UK and Celebs Go Dating on Channel 4. Both are incredible shows. I'm sure you'll agree. I didn't know Paul before we recorded this, and honestly, I was blown away by him. I experienced him to be so kind, wise, and compassionate, and of course, incredibly knowledgeable about what he does. In this episode, we chat about values and how to really live by them and how he lives by his number one value of family, even with a massive and growing career. We dive into relationships and children, how to navigate really hard things like different parenting styles, different values, and how to stay connected as a couple when there is so much else going on and it would be so easy to grow apart. We also unpack how do you know when it's the right time to fight for a relationship or when it's time to put that time and energy elsewhere? You're going to want to share this one for sure. So, to do that, just click three little dots, which should be next to the episode, hit copy link and paste into your messages to send. I have a feeling a lot of you are going to share this with your partners. So, hello. If you are a partner that has been sent this episode to listen to, I hope you enjoy it. Here it is. Paul, I wanted to start this conversation by asking about, you know, you are someone who is doing so much out in the world right now, a lot of which I'm absolutely loving. You are my nightly TV (laughs) watch, and I know from consuming so much about what you say, and who you are in the world, that family is also one of your top values, if not your top value. And I wanted to ask you about that conflict. How do you do so much out in the world and be present and expert and professional at that and be present and connected with your family? How do you do that?
1: This is one of the top questions that I get. And actually one of the number one areas of previous struggle but now I understand how to get the balance right. I think where it begins and where it really started for me is, and this isn't very long ago, this could be maybe six or seven years ago, is understanding truly what my values are. And I just want to spend a second on that because I think values has become a buzzword. And a lot of us, what we do is we think about what we would like to value or what our friends and family would like us to value. And then we list those as our values. And I'll give you the number one is that from 10 years of matchmaking, doing a values assessment was one of the first things that we would do. And typically, when I would ask the question, well, what do you value most? Typically, the answer would be religion. So whatever it may be, you know, Christianity, whatever the religion is, that would normally be, you know, number one. And then when you begin to unpack that and say, well, when's the last time you were at church? How many inches of dust are on your Bible? You know, when you start to really unpack this, you realize that that wasn't even a true value. What that was is that was what they wanted the world to think of them. But instead, what I say is look at where you spend your time, your excess time, should I say, and your money, your excess money that is, right? As an adult, that's really where the values lie. But where I'm going with this is that you have to know what your values are And then I believe it's very important to then optimize those. So you want to feed into those. You want to spend as much time doing those. You want to spend as much time bolstering those things. And the test to determine if those are truly your values is that the more that you do that thing, whatever that value is that you profess it is, the more you do that, the more you light up, the more, you know, joy that you have the happier you are, better disposition, healthier, ultimately, even the more money you make. And so for me, I had spent first 15 years of my career professing certain values that truly weren't my values. But then just over the last maybe six years or so, really understanding what my values are and directly feeding into those. And so to your question, family is number one for me. Hands down. Family is number one for my wife. And I think that's also very important when you're looking for a partner. You need to have a partner that shares your values. And because family is our number one, what we've done is we have remodeled our life so that we could feed that as being number one. And it requires and has required a lot of sacrifice in our lives. You know, and I'll give you just one example is several years ago, my wife and I, we took our boys out of school. We started homeschooling them. And the reason why we started homeschooling them is because we wanted to be able to travel the world with our family, not just my wife and I, right? And the boys are at home and with their grandmother. You know, we wanted them to be with us. And so that required us to remove them from school and, and to be ostracized because this is before COVID. This is before homeschooling was cool, you know? So there were certain things that we had to do. And then when it comes to work, what that means for me is that means that I set strict limitations around work. You know, I'll give you two. One, for example, is I always leave whatever project I'm on. I, I leave so that I can come home and have dinner with my family. We have dinner every night together. Now, of course, there are certain scenarios that happen where I may not be able to be at the dinner table, but that's infrequent. Typically, six times out of seven out of the week, we're having dinner as a family. And even if that means I'm traveling, I'm FaceTiming in while dinner is going on. So we protect that space. Also, if there's a project that I have to do that would remove me from the family for longer than two weeks, over 14 days, we then travel together as a family. We all pick up and go together as a family. So there's certain limitations that we set around our lower value places on the totem pole and give priority to what's higher on the value totem pole. And for us, that's family.
0: So, family is your number one. What are your other two values? So, we've got a sense of your top three.
1: And they all align with my wife. So, family, ambition is up there, creativity also is up there. So, those are the top three for us.
0: I'm not surprised to hear you say that. Something that I notice is a real challenge when people become parents is that they have very different values about how they're going to raise those children. And if you haven't had that conversation before, my gosh, can't that make those early few years just so challenging? Did you find that? Did you find with you and Jill that I certainly had this experience with sailing along with great children and it was like, poof, felt like having to re pour the foundations of our marriage?
1: The easy part of that answer is no, we didn't have those struggles. But the tough part is the reason why we didn't have those struggles is because we had spent practically 10 years before that negotiating and navigating boundaries and understanding how we show up in the world, which is, I think, critically important because when you look at raising a child, let's remove the relationship because right now we know that most children are being born not to married couples or committed couples. They're being born to, you know, people who are maybe in a situationship or, you know, not even in a situationship. But it requires a significant amount of understanding and appreciation and negotiation and compromise in order to then most effectively parent that child. This is the reason why it's so important to do that hard work. Before having children, before getting married, the before. The best way to work on being a parent is to prepare before you become a parent. The best time to work on your relationship is before you get into the relationship. And that's the reason why I think as human beings, we need to put so much more effort into, you call it whatever you want, the development, the learning, the w- whatever you want, before the thing.
0: Absolutely. And I can see how if you'd done that and those 10 years, my gosh, I I didn't have that long. And I know I've heard you talk about, you know, I think at one point you were like sleeping on the sofa during those 10 years. What's been the hardest patch in your marriage? Was it that and how did you overcome it?
1: The hardest part for us was earlier on, which happens to a lot of people, you know, often hear about the two year itch, the five year itch, the seven year itch. This is typically where you see a lot of couples break up. Also, a lot of current data is telling us that there's a significant number of empty nesters who are breaking up now. You know, when the child leaves home and you turn to your spouse and you say, who are you? You know, I don't even know who you are anymore. And you don't have the child there as the glue to keep you together. But for us, it was early on. And when I look back, what I realized was happening is I was off in my career doing my thing. This is, I was in investment banking. My wife was off in her career. She was working for a big law firm and we weren't spending any time together. We had different sets of colleagues and friends because we weren't spending time together because we had different social circles. We weren't interacting with each other. We weren't sharing each other's values. We weren't sharing about vision. We were not having sex at the same frequency, right? you have all of these things happening. It becomes very easy to completely grow apart and then just tell yourself, we're not even meant to be together. And so that was the hardest part for us. And then figuring out and having the real hard conversations, which also a lot of couples you know, struggle with the willingness to have the hard conversations, but having the hard conversations to then figure out, okay, Do we want to do the work to repair this or do we just want to hit eject and get out of the situation?
0: How do you know when it's right to lean in and do that work? Because it is a lot of work. And when it's like this just isn't in alignment, how does someone figure that out? Because it can be incredibly complex, particularly when you put in different people's developmental trauma, different attachment styles, different love languages, like how on earth? And we've got little children and we're knackered. And how do we figure that out?
1: You know what's so fascinating about you asking this question? I'm a super geek.
0: Same. I'm with you.
1: We're geeks. We're geeks. And so what I try to do is every morning, I try to either just free write just to let ideas flow and or research various topics. And do you know what I was researching this morning? I was researching... And when I say what the data, because I like to go to, so academia.edu is my favorite. I like to read the research papers. I was looking at when is the right time to leave a relationship? This a precise question. So I'm in the flow of this right now. And I plan to spend, you know, the next week or so just going deep in it. But here's what I've found so far. And here's what my gut says based on what I found so far. Because you have to, you know, use discernment. A large challenge that we have is the struggle of, is what I'm going through normal or is it abnormal? And that becomes the decision point for many of us. So you think, you know, you have a partner and, you know, your partner's not really talking to you and you've stopped having sex with your partner and, and they're saying some things that are mean, but you don't know, is, is that verbal abuse? Is that emotional abuse? Aren't all couples go through this challenge. So should I stay? Should I go? But the question ultimately becomes, is this normal? Is this acceptable? And also a challenge that we have is that we see television and we see social media and everyone looks so happy and so amazing and so loved up. And so we're having a really hard time understanding what is acceptable and what is not. So you have that. That's one side. But then you have the other side, like in Michelle Obama's new book, which is amazing. And she talks a lot about her marriage and relationships. One of the things that she mentions in the book is something that I heard constantly growing up. And that was, you stay with your partner, you work at it. And Michelle Obama talks about, she thinks that a lot of couples break up too early. They leave the relationship too early. So you have that side And so then you have to ask yourself, so what's the answer? I think in short, here's what the answer is. You have to know what is safety to you. Safety to me is incredibly important. And I mean, it's essentially one of, if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it's pretty much right up there as number one. But when I say safety, I'm not just talking about the physical safety, which Maslow would talk about the food and water. I'm talking about Physical as well as mental safety, psychological safety. Do you feel safe in your relationship? Do you feel like you could be your full self? Do you feel like you can talk about your greatest pain points? Do you feel like you can be fully vulnerable? Do you feel like you can share? You could bear your heart to your partner and they will be there to support you. That's number one. I think that we all must have as a human being to operate as our best self. We need to be in a space of safety. So I think that becomes the first question, because if the answer to that is yes, then you can move on to the next question. Is your partner and are you willing to put in effort to make whatever the situation is better? Because if you have the safety... And then you have the effort, mutual effort. I think from that point, you can move on to the next point. And that is, is bringing in counselor, helping to mediate therapy, etc. cetera. You can help to resolve things. But if you don't have safety and or you don't have effort, then you don't have a relationship. You have a situation. You don't have a relationship. You know, relationship is a two-way street. It's someone giving you giving, but someone also taking and you taking. And so ultimately for me, and once again, I'm day one in my deep research on this, but to me, safety and effort become the two distinguishing points to determine if you should stay or go.
0: If you don't feel that safety, can that be created? Say both of you have traumas, right? Say one of you is avoidant, one of you is anxious, one of you might bring a vulnerability that might trigger the other person. And so you're not feeling that safety. Can that be
1: worked on? Absolutely. There are small areas that cannot be worked on. And I'll I'll give you one because I've been asked questions like this before, right? And I'll say, you know, Paul, can you get safety or can you take someone who's an abuser, for example, and turn them around? And I'll say, yes. And in the media, it's like, oh, you can't change a narcissist. A narcissist is a narcissist, right? And I'll say, yeah, this is true. But if you research David Buss, who's an authority in this space, and you look at narcissists, you look at psychopaths, you look at people who are Machiavellian, who just want to strategically do harm to you, you look at the percentage of people who, unfortunately, it's mostly men, who fit that category or those categories of a bad person. But you look at the percentages, it's less than maybe 5% of the population. The word narcissist, I think, is actually one of the most misused, misinterpreted words. You could be an asshole, but not a narcissist. You know what I mean?
0: Especially now, like how many people, I'm sure everyone listening, well, not everyone, I'm sure a high proportion has done that, is my partner narcissist quiz. Who hasn't done that when they've been uh, annoying? You're like, right, I'm going to slap a label on you.
1: <laughs> right, you're a narcissist and I, I'm going to feel better. But no, I'm telling you, he's probably not a narcissist. He's probably just an asshole. You know, <laughs> <laughs> if there's a difference. I guess where I'm going with all this is that because of that, there's a small percentage of people who cannot be rehabilitated, right? You cannot. However, the overwhelming majority, you can. And if you can be rehabilitated, it means that you can find a place of safety with them.
0: And that looks like that decision, isn't it? Which is, am I going to work at this relationship to try and find that safety? And in your experience, obviously couples therapy is incredible. I've done so many rounds with my husband. It's amazing. I'm such, such, such a big fan of it, but what can people do if they can't access, have you got some good sort of coaching tools of what can people do, you know, who are listening to this thinking, I really
1: want to work on my relationship? Yes, this is a great question. And in something that I would love to see us just as humans recognize is that it's, Great. It's important. We all should find a therapist, a counselor or a therapist, right? A human being that's a professional in that space. But what we also have to understand is that if you and your partner just listen to this podcast and have a discussion about what you heard in this podcast, this has been a therapy session, period. It's a therapy session and it could be a therapy session that's even more beneficial than you going to see someone physically and the reason why i say this is because therapy in essence means to heal that's really what you're talking about and all of us have pain all of us have trauma and all of us are in the need or should i say are on the pathway of healing and so if you're putting forth the effort so quick tool is listen to this podcast with your partner actually all of your podcasts with your partner and then have a discussion about that. What do you think about that? Oh, I disagree. Well, why do you disagree with it? Oh yeah, I think this is a great idea. Oh, why is this a great idea? Right? Have a discussion, an active discussion. That alone begins to spark conversation and that begins to strengthen communication and that pushes effort. So that's the quick tip. Listen to these podcast sessions, YouTube videos, Pick up books, read books together, and actively, actively discuss them.
0: When we become parents, often we consume so much about what to do with the baby, what to do with the toddler, what to do, forgetting, of course, that relationships. I wonder if you feel this too. There's just an assumption in society that we know how to do relationships. Why on earth would we know that? Particularly if our blueprints, you know, which mine weren't optimal, nor were my husbands, you know. Why do we think we're going to know how to do this? We've really had to study it. And it's still really hard.
1: To your point there, no one, not one person's blueprint was perfect. No. When you look at a spectrum of trauma as a child, you see that every child has gone through a form of trauma. Now there's a complete range, severe to less severe, But everyone has gone through this trauma. And what we have to understand is that when we become an adult, we're not falling in love for the first time. What we're doing is we're rekindling the love that we believed we had when we were a child. That's what we're doing. And so if you think of it that way, you realize, okay, if we've all had trauma, we're all rekindling a love that we thought we had. That means we're rekindling an imperfect love. And then we're applying that to someone else who is rekindling an imperfect love. It means that without question, there's going to be issues. And that's the reason why I go back to the safety and I go back to effort is because I think that these two are incredibly important as building blocks to wanting to pursue the relationship further.
0: It's incredible, isn't it? Also, what I've learned, which blew my mind when we first went through our first round of couples therapy, we were engaged and we had this amazing therapist. We didn't know what she was trained in, and she was trained in Amajo therapy. So she was like, You have attracted each other to heal your deepest wounds. I was like, mind blown. Because I, wanting to reject everything that was triggering me about my husband guy. And she was like, no, 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 no. He's triggering it all because he's going to be the one to help you heal it. Like anger was our perfect example. I'm petrified of anger. I hate it. I will avoid conflict at all costs. I'm married to someone who gets really angry. (laughs) And I think had she not taught us that and we worked through it and he could see he needed to simmer down and I needed to simmer, you know, I don't think we would have lasted.
1: You know what's so beautiful about what you just said? I mean, several things. One is that you had the therapy before you were married. That's lovely. But 100% of the time, when you talk to anyone who's gone through therapy, they will tell you that the difference between them after therapy and before therapy is that before therapy, they pointed the finger outward. And after therapy, they point the finger inward. They point the finger at themselves and they always ask, well, what could I do better in the situation? That's all you need. If you have two people in a relationship who, whenever an issue arises, they point the finger at themselves and say, well, what can I do better in this situation? That's a relationship that has a much higher likelihood of, of not just lasting. Because also I think we need to get out of this zone of a successful relationship is one that goes 40 years or 30 years. No, a successful relationship is one that you feel your best self in because ultimately, what I see the relationship is, is, you know, have you heard this concept called the Michelangelo effect? So the Michelangelo effect is this idea that what your partner does, and this is actually essentially what you just said, what your partner does is your partner is essentially helping you to become your best self. So your best self is like when Michelangelo would look at a stone, he wouldn't say, I'm going to carve this beautiful sculpture. He would say that I'm going to unveil the beautiful piece of structure that's within this stone. I'm going to unveil it. So the Michelangelo effect is saying that your partner is going to help unveil your best self. And it takes a partner to be able to look inward first to ask themselves what they can do better to then show up better for you to help you to become your best self. So it almost requires therapy. (laughs) It requires that level to have a happy and fulfilled and optimal relationship.
0: And if someone's listening and they are in that blame place where they're like well he doesn't help me with the kids enough he's snappy in the morning and I'm trying to get the kids out he has no idea of all the invisible emotional labor that I'm doing as a mother he's not loving me I don't feel like blame 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 how does someone and it's completely easy to get to that place by the way I'm sure you and I've both been there we are you know What is a really powerful coaching question or set of questions that someone could ask themselves to start to do exactly what you're talking about, which is coming to accountability and
1: empowerment? Here's where I would begin with this. What I would begin is that I think all of those feelings that that person has of frustration, those feelings have to be released and has to be released in a positive way. And typically when someone gets to that point, they're not feeling heard. And they're not feeling affirmed because they're not heard, right? But it's because it's deep down. So the best thing to do in a scenario like that, the best is you get the kids away at school, you get the kids at the grandparents, whatever it may be, and you get one hour with your partner and you take that one hour outside of the home. You're in a park, you're sitting on a bench, there's no cell phones, there's no distractions, and then you have a conversation with your partner and you allow your partner to understand how their actions are making you feel. Now, the reason why I say that, what their actions are making you feel is, I'm not saying that you're pointing the blame at the partner, but what you're saying is, is that Based on your actions, based on, you know, you don't come home after work like you say you're going to come home, you know, there's don't show up for the kids, blah, blah, blah. So those actions, what those do is it makes me feel lonely as how the actions make me feel. So I feel lonely. I'm in a relationship with you and I feel lonely. So then the next is, well, how do my actions make you feel? Because maybe. Your actions make him feel as if he's not wanted. Yeah, probably, you can imagine the dynamic. Exactly. He's thinking, oh, you don't want me at the house because I make you upset all the time. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so I feel like you don't want me. So what you're doing there is you're discovering how these actions make each other feel. So you're becoming aware. That's the first step. Then the next step is, is okay, How do we reconcile this? How do we get to a place where my actions are not making you feel this way? And how do we get to a place where your actions are not making me feel this way? And that's where they start coming, listening to the podcast, this podcast together.
0: There's also that incredible tool that Guy and I learned, which is when you're doing exactly that. And I might be saying, when you do this, it makes me feel. We had this therapist once who taught us, which we still use. Guy then wasn't allowed to go, yeah, but, 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 defense, defense, defense. He had to say, what I heard you say, so was. And oh my God, we, when we do that, it's like, you just feel seen. We do it both ways. And it's such a simple tool. I just wish they taught this stuff on curriculum. Honestly, it's so simple. What I heard you say was, do it with the kids as well. What I heard you say was, you really don't want to go to that party. And what I'm hearing is that... It's like balm, isn't it? To the soul, just to feel that someone gets you.
1: Yes. And to your point is you matter. So here's an egregious name drop, but I think this is an appropriate time for it. I was talking to Oprah one day and she was telling me about how every single guest who had ever been on the Oprah Winfrey show asked her the same question after. And you think about her guests, her guests were the queen, the Pope, presidents, prime ministers, CEOs, you think the most powerful people in the world who are clearly seen, clearly heard, and they come on this show and they sit down and they talk to Oprah, the cameras go off and they lean to Oprah and they always ask her the same question. She said, they ask her, how was that? Was that okay? Was that what you needed? Did I do everything okay? It shows you that No matter who we are, no matter what role position, at the end of the day, we're human beings and human beings, all human beings need to be affirmed. So if those folks on the Oprah couch need to be affirmed, rest assured your partner needs to be reaffirmed and it's your primary, primary obligation to affirm them.
0: Yeah, it's so true. And I've heard that before that, that episode, and she does an amazing impression of Barack when she goes, was that okay? I can't do it. <laughs> Cause you know, even he, you know, turn the camera off. It's so, so, so true. And I love that that's her insight from those thousands and thousands of interviews. Let me ask you this, what's your insight from your hundreds, if not thousands of hours of TV, particularly I'm thinking about Married at First Sight, what have you learned about relationships from that show and that experiment that you didn't
1: know before? Mm, That's a nice question. Gosh, that I didn't know before. It's a really good one. So I can think of actually a couple things. One is just how much emphasis and importance we place on the first few moments of our interaction with someone. You know, I've always known that when you meet someone, it's important, right? We always hear, you know, you you can't make a second impression. You don't get a second chance to make a first impression. We hear this all the time, but I never understood to the degree to which I understand now, having gone through three series of at First Sight, how important the first few moments at the altar are and how the altar alters what happens in the relationship. My favorite moment of the show, my favorite moment is when the groom turns around and sees the bride.
0: Yeah, me too. I cry every single
1: time. It is powerful. I think that the audience is becoming so astute now that they have to probably edit this differently. So, you know, the first series as the experts, we went to the weddings and. I remember being at those weddings because they were the first weddings that I, I went to where, you know, they were still strangers to me, right? Normally you go to a wedding, you know who's getting married, that kind of thing. But these were complete strangers. So I didn't have any context other than watching them interact at the altar. And I realized that in the seconds where the groom turns around and looks, if you look at whether the groom inhales or exhales, That alone, I think is almost a 100%, almost 100% predictor of at least do they become a strong couple, right? Or do they, you know, fizzle out quickly? Is there an exhale or an inhale? It's the exhale. It's the relief instead of the inhale. Oh my goodness. The exhale versus inhale. It seems so simple, but yet that is a very pivotal moment. Then of course, The reaction of the bride. And I think there's almost this evolutionary psychology thing going on. The bride factors in even more information in those seconds. And what science tells us is that in a heterosexual relationship, right, it takes a man three seconds to determine if a woman is what he would consider to be physically attractive. Okay. So you think three seconds, that's quick. Groom turns around, one, two, Three, okay, I got it, right? Because I've checked her out. But you know how long it takes a woman to do that? It takes a woman milliseconds, much quicker, milliseconds. And this has been studied. So you think about this, in my mind, what I think is happening is, is I think women can actually compute physicality and can compute more data faster in that particular scenario. So you think about that. The groom turns around, the bride sees him, sees him inhale, exhale, takes in all of his body language, takes in his physicality, takes in, right, all these thoughts and feelings and then makes a determination. And I think that you could then read that determination based on her smile. There's something called the Dushin smile, which is an authentic smile where you can see the crow's feet underneath the eyes. There's dimples pop. You could see, you could really determine that it is not a fabricated smile, but it is a true smile, the Duchenne smile. If you see the groom exhale and you see the bride give a Duchenne smile, that to me is like it's all over. But if you see a fake smile, you see an inhale, you see any of those things, it takes like you have to look at it detailed. But that to me, so I mean, this is a long, long answer. And that's just one, but there's certain things that I've seen that to me, as someone who loves relationship science, is fascinating to me.
0: Right. Well, tonight I'm going back and I'm rewatching the two series just at that moment. We've got some questions as well that my community sent in, if you're open to answering some of them, because there are some absolute corkers in here. Love it. The first one comes from Jules, and she says, my partner and I have completely different ideas about parenting. So she says she wants to do gentle parenting, really validating the child's feelings, understanding where they're coming from, connection. He, the moment the child does thing, wants to put them into timeout. And she says it is causing just constant daily conflict. She says, what do I do? Question mark, question mark, question mark.
1: At that point, I think you have to bring in a professional. They're not even on the same page. They're not even in the same book, actually. Those are two different books, handbooks to parenting. The one strongest bit of advice that I would give is that it's very important that they negotiate those differences away from the child and not in front of the child. That's like fundamental, because if you negotiate that in front of the child, the child understands that there's a chasm. There's a difference between what mommy thinks and what daddy thinks. And what's also interesting is that when we look at, especially children under the age of four, we see that children actually don't see us as parents as one person. They see us as different people based on our emotion. Oh, there's happy daddy. Oh, there's mean daddy. And at two or three or even four, those feel like different people. Mad daddy's showing up. And that causes even more substantial trauma. And then once we get beyond four, we begin to see, oh, wow. Okay. They're the same person, right? They're just weird, you know? But the point there is that when you have a difference of opinion in your parents and you're arguing in front of your child, you have mean daddy and mean mommy are there. There's no happy daddy or happy mommy there. And then the child feels alone. And that, you know, you talked about attachment styles early on. That's how you begin to get that anxious attachment style in particular, which you don't want your child to have. So long story short is negotiate those differences away from your child, but they need to bring in a professional.
0: Yeah. And that links back to what we were talking around safety as well. You can see how that child then, what might feel safe to them in a relationship might feel very different to what would feel safe to someone who had aligned parents. Sam says my partner is struggling with depression slash childhood trauma. He's in complete denial about it and defensive whenever I bring it up, but it is impacting our relationship daily.
1: All right. So this is interesting because what's triggering him is the partner bringing it up, but the partner, this is another situation where the partner is trying to help, you know, the partner's bringing it up, but this is where you have to point the finger back at yourself because it's the partner asking the question, right? So if you bring it up, you trigger your partner, which means that you cannot bring it up you cannot bring it up. It doesn't mean someone else cannot bring it up. So what I've found to be really effective for couples is not necessarily when you bring in a a professional, right? Because that suggests, hey, I think you need professional. That could be even more triggering. But instead, when you bring in a mutual friend, a friend that your partner respects and you respect, You know what I mean? It was interesting. I was watching The Crown last night. And so every night, this is my thing. I watch one episode of The Crown. I love the psychology of The Crown. And so I'm not going to give stuff away, but I'm sure everyone knows the story. But when, you know, obviously when the Prince of Wales and the Princess of Wales uh, were negotiating their divorce, they had to bring the prime minister in. They were going to bring in professionals. They were trying to bring in other people who worked for the royal family, but they realized that they needed someone who had mutual respect to Diana and Charles both respected. So they brought the prime minister in. The prime minister was able to facilitate this thing. We all have the prime minister friend in our life. We all do. That's the person that I suggest you bring in and you include and you just simply say, you know, I'm trying to help. I don't know how to help. Can you help me help? You bring that mutual friend in. So the mutual friend could be a family member, you know, it could be a neighbor, whoever it may be. But the mutual friend, I think is very, very effective. And then the last thing I'll say on that one too, is the one hour walk in the park, sit on the bench. That is where you get the real work. And you let your partner know what you're attempting to do, why you're attempting to do it, and you ask them for alternative ways. What's an alternative opposed to me bringing this up? What's something else that can be done? And then also, there's so much to say, but I have to say this one thing. This, I think this is really, really critical is because I think the theme for our conversation today is safety and effort. And one of the places that we have to be very aware and cognizant of is a partner who does not want to not only create a place of safety, but who doesn't want to put any effort into any bit of change. That to me is a, I mean, I don't like to use red flag, you know, but that to me is very alarming. When you have a partner that's just like, no, I'm on cruise control. I'm fine. You are either healing together or you're creating trauma together. There's no in between.
0: It's really hard that one, isn't it? Because I also know... Before I'd met Guy and in some earlier relationships, I wasn't ready to look at my stuff. I don't think my nervous system was ready for me to do that, actually. I'd had people in the past suggesting, listen, that sounds like you might need to go. And I was so defensive. It's so complex. Because I think there's that other thing. It's like when that person's time is right, then of course, it completely colors and impacts the person you're in a relationship with. So it's not just about you anymore.
1: It's not, but you know, on that it's interesting. So I'm curious, what inspired you to do the pre-couples or pre-marital therapy since you had been reluctant before? So what inspired you to do it?
0: I knew I loved Guy. I knew that I wanted a future with him, but I was very, very nervous because I was just starting to really understand childhood trauma, codependency, attachment styles. And I was like, I don't feel like I'm healed enough. I'm really worried that this might be another sort of unhealthy dynamic. I was really unsure. And a very, very wise friend said to me, listen, all you need is someone that's going to grow and heal with you. You've both got stuff. So you're never going to find the perfect person and you're never going to be completely whole and healed. It does not work that way. But if you can find someone who is willing to do the work with you, you're onto a winner. So I said, Well, how do I know that? She said, Well, why don't you ask this? We'd not been together that long, like a year, maybe 18 months. We just got engaged. Why don't you ask him to do couples therapy with you before you get married? If he says no, run for the hills. If he says yes, that's going to tell you everything you need to know. And I remember I was shaking. I was so nervous because I was like, This is going to determine whether I marry this guy. And I said, Would you be open to, coming to work through some stuff with me. I kept it about me. I'm feeling really insecure. I'm feeling. And he said, what an amazing idea. Definitely completely up for that. And that just taught me everything that I needed to know really about him and just our willingness, as you say, to heal together. But thank God for that friend, because it might have been the other way and I might have saved myself potentially a lot of heartache and a divorce.
1: I love that story. I think it's spot on. I think that should serve as the gold standard for couples who are thinking about a committed relationship. It really should.
0: Well, I was just very lucky that I had incredibly wise and have incredibly wise people around me. Gosh, such a gift. I'm going to ask you one more question. And I think I'm going to ask you this one because I think it's really common. Sarah says, How do I reconnect with my partner? We have completely grown apart and feel like strangers. We have three children under five and we barely get to sit down together. What do we do?
1: All right. So one is you got to hold on. All the time people will say, well, Paul, like, okay, you know, you're doing all these cool dates with your wife. That's because your children are eight and 12 right now. And when they were under five, when we had a five-year-old and a two-year-old, now you just have to hold on. Things are crazy. You know, I mean, that's the bottom line is that you can't have date night all the time because you're allocating your time to them. So at first is like, hold on, but, and, and I'm not really joking about that. I'm saying you, you got to hold on. But the other piece to that is do try to think about how you can, and I'll give three quick tips. One is, can you create any type of space so that once per week you can spend time together alone? If that means friends or family or someone comes over to the house, nanny comes up, whatever it is, however you can finagle it, can you create that or can you do it in the evening? So kids are asleep, they're upstairs, everyone's in bed, say by nine, you then between 9.30 and 10.30, because you're going to be tired because you have to get up early with them. But between 9.30 and 10.30 on Wednesday nights, that is your night together, Right. So you have to be able to create that space. And it's very important because when you have date nights, you as a couple, you look forward to it. It's also an opportunity to begin to share thoughts and feelings that you have. You may have something that you know that you want to get off your chest and you need to have the right time, and the date night is the right time. So that's one is carve space out for that. Number two, this is gonna sound super simple. I just said this on Lorraine. And it's caused a lot of talk. You know where I'm going with this? The six seconds. I'm telling you, that will light things up. And the reason why, and I'm getting, when I say countless, I'm talking about hundreds of responses of people saying, oh my God, Paul, thank you. This helped my relationship so much, right? And the reason why is it's not the six seconds. What it is, is it's the fact that it is just like a date night. It's a dedicated space in time where you and your partner know that you're going to do something together. You're going to kiss. And for a lot of people, it becomes funny and humorous. It's like, oh, we've never kissed this long. right? So it becomes an opportunity to laugh and joke. For others, it becomes very sensual. For others, they feel affirmed. They feel seen. They feel connected. It's something to look forward to. But the six-second kiss. So I say, do the six-second kiss. Do it. 30 days. Guarantee, right? It's going to change things. So that's two. The third is very simple. And this is you wake up and you ask your partner, what's one thing I could do for you today? Real simple. What is one thing that I could do for you today? Tell me. And you hear partners give the whole range. I'm talking about you hear everything from, well, here's the sexual position that we've never tried. (laughs) Like, I'd like to try this tonight, right? all the way through to, can you pick up the kids early so I can get half an hour so I can go to the gym because I haven't gone you know for a while. You get the whole range. Ask your partner, what's one thing I can do? By getting to that zone, that's in that zone of caring and you know, letting your partner know that they're from. So what's one thing you could do for your partner every day? The six second kiss, very, very important. And then date night. I think those will help tremendously.
0: Amazing. And all really practical and don't take hours and hours and days out, which as you say, you just don't have. The last question, which is from me, and we ask the same question at the end of every episode, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why?
1: Hands down, no question, because I know through being a father is to be able to see your children blossom into the children, but also the adults that they want to be like to see your child grow in a healthy way. I know it seems so simple, but if you're not a parent, you don't get that. But if you are a parent, you entirely get that like that becomes your objective is it's like, I just want to be around to see my child do their thing, you know, make their etching in the world. I just want to be present for it. To be able to give them a hug and a kiss. So, for every mother to be able to see their child reach their dreams, their child's dreams, that would be my.
0: It's beautiful. And it is an absolute privilege for so many reasons. Mothers don't have access to that or can't do that. Or, you know, gosh, the privilege, as you say, of being able to witness that is just unbelievable. Thank you so much. This has been incredible. I've absolutely loved it. And I know that your words are going to help and just transform, I think, so many of my listeners' relationships. So thank you so, so, so much. Where can someone, apart from on the telly box every night, where can someone learn? Because you have memberships and incredible things going on. Tell us about where someone can learn more about you and your work.
1: Real simple for me is at Paul C. Brunson on whatever your favorite social... Platform is LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook. If it's on the web, policybrunson.com. It's real easy, but that is the best. Or on television, typically at 9 or 10 p.m. on Channel 4, is where you can see me. Those are the places.
0: Well, thank you again. It's been an absolute honor. That was the episode. I hope you really enjoyed it. Please do consider sharing it. That is how the Motherkind podcast has grown. You, my lovely listeners, sharing the episodes that you love. So please do share it. And if you have time, please do consider leaving us a review wherever you are listening to this podcast. It makes such a big difference to the number of mums that we can reach with this incredible content. So through August, we re-release our most popular episodes for the first six months of the year. So look out for those in your feed. Also, if you're listening to this on Apple, which over 70% of you do, then you can now subscribe to the podcast for just $3.99 a month. And you can support me and my very, very, very small team to keep putting out incredible content. So thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your support. And I will see you next time.